0: So this week, of course, is a very unique Parsha. Parsha's Vizosa Bracha is the only Parsha, the final Parsha of the Torah, is the only one that is not read on Shabbos, not associated with the Shabbos. This past Shabbos, and now I'm recording it on Sunday, this past Shabbos was the Cholamoid of Sukkot, and we read on Shabbos, this past Shabbos, we read something related to the festivals, and this upcoming Shabbos, is going to be already Parshas Barashas, we are going to be reading Vezos Habracha on Simchas Torah. So in Israel, that will be Tuesday this year, in the United States, in the Diaspora, it is on Wednesday. And this week, we're going to have to figure out how to do two Parsha Podcasts, one now for Vezos Habracha, And this Shabbos is already the beginning of the upcoming cycle, Parshas Barashas. We're only going to have two days to do it, to study it, to prepare it. But now we're focusing on the end of the Torah. The final Parsha podcast of the cycle! And I prepared something really special for you. I decided to undertake something very ambitious. What I want to do, because today is still Sukkot, still Sukkot, I wanted to connect the Parsha To the festival, and I want to connect that to what I think is maybe the most important and central message of the Parsha podcast, and I want to link the end of the Torah with the beginning of the Torah from the conclusion, to the beginning of the Torah anew, I want to wrap all that in one beautiful, delightful episode of the Parsha podcast. Is that a lot? Are we biting off more than we can chew? You bet we are. Of course we are. But that is our mission. That is our mandate in the Parsha Podcast. That's what we do in the Torch Center. We bite off more than we can chew, and we keep on chewing. So let's begin with a question. This week, we're going to read two parshas. We're going to have on Chastora Tuesday or Wednesday, Tuesday in Israel, Wednesday in the diaspora, we are going to be reading Vezos Bracha. And then a couple days later, we scroll the Torah all the way back to the beginning, and we start anew, we start with Genesis. And I think it's somewhat of an unnatural transition. You know, the story of the Torah, the narrative flow has been building up since we started the fifth cycle of the Parsha podcast, since Parsha's Bracious. And every Parsha kind of leads into the beginning of, the ensuing Parsha, and we experience the story of our people vicariously through the Parsha. There's a lot of ups and downs, ebbs and flows, high watermarks, and nadirs. But this week, we're going to go through a transition that's very unnatural, maybe even a bit jarring. We have been leading up to a point where we're finally... On the doorstep of Canaan, we've been following this continuous linear storyline, and very abruptly, Moshe's going to die, the end of our parsha, and that's it. We have this void, and the very next week, or really two days later, we go all the way back to zero, all the way back to Genesis, back to the very beginning, and the question that I'm worried about is, what about all that hard work that we did? Yeah, you know, we worked through the story. You know, we, we met Abraham and Isaac and of course Jacob and his exploits and Joseph and his brothers and the Exodus story and Sinai and the golden calf and the spies and Korach and Balak and Deuteronomy. We've been building up this tremendous edifice. And next week, we're back to zero. We're back to Genesis. We're back to the origin of man, to Noah. It's almost like we got very advanced in the story and we're going back to the Stone Age. We lose all our progress. So the first question I want to pose for this very special final Parsha podcast of this cycle is what are we supposed to make of this very unusual transition where we've built up the whole storyline and then we, so to speak, lose it and start from the beginning. Question number one. Point number two that I want to focus on is, you know, the story of our Parsha is Moshe giving the blessings to the tribes and then dying. And the Parsha, and indeed the Torah ends with a reflection of Moshe's greatness. And I think that for us, he's been our guide essentially since the beginning of Exodus. He's been the main protagonist of the story. And this is the culmination of his story. This is the culmination of the Torah. And I think it is appropriate for us to explore what exactly Moshe did to get there. What did he undergo? What process did he go through to arrive at his destination? Now, today is, of course, also the festival of Sukkot. And Sukkot is, of course, a subject that we've spoken about in the other podcasts at great length but I want to focus on a very unusual custom that we do on Sukkot, and that is the custom of the Ushpizan. Ushpizan is the Aramaic word for guests, and the idea behind this custom is featured in the Zohar, and the Kabbalistic literature. We are told the following very unusual thing. Over the seven days of Sukkot, the seven greatest leaders of our history, the seven greatest people of all time, Come to visit us in our sukkah on these seven successive days. And in fact, the Zohar tells us, one of the great sages of the Talmudic era, he would welcome these ushpiz and these guests into his sukkah every night. Before he walked in, he says, okay, it's time for you to come join us. Let's invite all our guests. And there's no one there or no one that we could visualize with our eyes. He's inviting these invisible, the souls of these seven giants into the sukkah. Who are these seven giants? So day one is Abraham, and then Isaac, Jacob, Moshe, Aaron, Joseph, and David. For seven days of Sukkot, we are visited by these seven greatest leaders of our history. Now, what happens when they come visit? Of course, we can't see it with our physical eyes. But in the accompanying liturgy of this very unusual custom, we say... That these Ushpizin, these seven guests actually speak to us. They communicate with us in our sukkah. So each of these days, we have the greatest people of our history come to our sukkah and speak to us. Isn't that a strange custom? Now, I think there's a question here. A few questions. First of all, it's a really nice idea to have Abram come to your sukkah. And it's seven days. Isn't that convenient? We have seven greatest leaders, and we have seven days. Isn't it nice that we can have one visitor every day? But why is this only on Sukkot? We have a perfectly functional seven-day festival called Pesach. Yet these Ushbizim, according to the capitalistic literature, they show up on Sukkot alone and not on Passover, and Pesach. So what is inherent in this festival that makes it worthy of having these seven visitors specifically? Question number one. Question number two. In the tabalistic literature, these seven Ushpizen who visit us, my Isaac, and Jacob, three forefathers, Moshe and Aaron, Joseph, and King David, there's another name that they're given. They are called the Shiva Roim, the seven shepherds. Why are these seven people called the seven shepherds? So, of course, you could say, well, you know, they're leaders, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're the forefathers. And then, of course, you have the most special son of Jacob, which is Joseph. And he was a leader. And Moshe and Aaron were leaders. And David was a king. He's a leader and a leader shepherds the nation, and these are the greatest leaders that we've had, and they shepherded the nation faithfully. That's a very good explanation to explain why they're called shepherds. In fact, in Parshas Pinchas, when Moshe asked God to appoint a successor for him, he actually said that the nation should not be like a flock that does not have a shepherd. So there is, of course, a precedent to this idea that a leader is akin to a shepherd. But if you examine the story of these seven people, you find that quite literally, they were all shepherds. Abraham, of course, he was a shepherd, or at least he had shepherds who worked for him. There's a story with the shepherds of Lot and the shepherds of Abraham, and there was a scuffle. Remember that in Parshas Lech Lecha? In Parsh's Toldos, we read how Isaac also owned lots of, Cattle and livestock and flocks. He too was a shepherd. Jacob, of course, spent 14 years as a shepherd for the rights to marry Leah and and Rachel. And then six more years to deplete Laban of all his money. Joseph is a shepherd. Moshe, chapter 3 of Exodus, is a shepherd. David, of course, famously, is a shepherd. So all of them are shepherds, Right. No, wrong. Only six of them are documented in Scripture as having been shepherds. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, Moshe, and David. All of them, except for Aaron, were quite literally shepherds. Yet they're called the seven shepherds. So this raises two more questions. We're talking about the seven greatest leaders of all time. The ones that come to visit us in our circa for the seven days of Sukkot. And they're called the seven shepherds. And they, or at least most of them, are quite literally, that's what they did. That's their profession. So question number one is, why is shepherding, of all the professions, why is that the one that's likely to prime a person to become one of these giant titanic leaders. Why is this the occupation likely to spawn someone like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and David, and Moshe, and Joseph? What about the rest of the classic Jewish professions, like a lawyer, a physician, my son's a doctor, he's a physicist, a scientist, a technologist, a financier? What about Hollywood? There's a lot of professions out there, but somehow being a shepherd is the one that at least six of these seven quote unquote shepherds took. And that is somewhat noteworthy towards what they became. And you would think, you know, a shepherd sits alone with the flock, with the cattle. It's kind of a job for an introvert. It's a job for a loner. You wouldn't think that this would be the career path best suited for leading the masses. So why is shepherding going to make someone or likely to make someone into a great leader? Or at least why did the great leaders of our history, why were they specifically shepherds? And what is the meaning behind Aaron, the exception? Aaron is not a shepherd, yet he's called a shepherd. What is the meaning of that? Now, I'll tell you, there is a Midrash. The Midrash says explicitly, this is in Shmos Rabbah two, that Moshe was chosen to become the leader because of the mercy that he displayed as a shepherd to his sheep. So there's clearly something about shepherding that is conducive to developing leadership skills to become one of these all-time greats, to join this rarefied pantheon, what is the secret of the shepherd? So we have five questions or five subjects here to ponder and see if we could tie them together. Number one, a very unusual transition. We, we, we kind of work really hard to get to where we are in the Torah, and next week, or really this week, we're going to go back to zero. What do we make of that? Moshe, of course, is the main subject of our Parsha. The Torah ends with the death, the burial, and the eulogy of Moshe. And maybe it's worthwhile to reflect on him and his origin and the fact that he was a shepherd. And that is, so to speak, the test that the body used to determine his credentials and his eligibility to be a leader of the Jewish people. And then we focused on the Sukkot aspect of this, the idea of the Yishpizan. Why is it on Sukkot only? Why are the greatest leaders of our people, why are they shepherds, and what do we make of the fact that Aaron is included amongst this list of seven shepherds, but there is no indication that he ever served as a shepherd. That's the setup. Here's what I want to suggest. We all bear a soul holier and more powerful than angels. I'm talking to you. You have a soul within you that is so powerful, that is so lofty, that is so supremely close to God, it's more powerful and loftier than the loftiest of angels. The greatest of angels cannot hold a candle to the soul that you have within yourself. When King David is looking for something, something that is in some way comparable to God. He says, Baruch inaf Hashem. Let my soul bless God. That's the only thing that really is capable of blessing God. Not even angels. All of us are endowed with superpowers. But what we actually do, what we actually produce for the Almighty, the output of what we contribute towards accomplishing the mission of humanity is actually tiny compared to what we can and what we ought and what we must do. We all have much more ability than what we've actualized. And the reason why we're not living up to the expectation of the Almighty, we're not maximizing the opportunity of having a soul within you that's more powerful than the angels. The reason is because we have become conditioned to mediocrity. We're conditioned to being average, to being mediocre, to being just as good as everyone else, to go with the flow, to live up to the standards of all the other people that we see. You know, you could listen to a lecture, you could listen to a podcast, you could study Torah, and you could listen with half an ear. You could kind of get the gist. You listen to every other word, and you basically understand what the message is. And if you're gifted, and you are, you could still go to school and kind of coast your way through school and still pass the finals and still get A's. You could cruise through work and be good enough to not get fired. There's kind of a, a low expectation, really, of people as gifted as you with minimal effort and minimal work, you could be good enough. And I think the reason why we don't accomplish the great things that the money expects from us is because we tend to measure ourselves by the standards of other mediocre people. We're surrounded by average people, by mediocre people, and I'm not saying saying this as an insult. I'm saying by the standards of what you are actually capable of, if you were to marshal every ounce of your ability, what you can actually do dwarfs what you're currently doing. If you were to actualize every little gift that they might give you, And compare that to what you've become or where you're holding, by that standard, all of us are mediocre. I had a conversation with someone yesterday, just finished law school. And I said to him, well, you spent three years in law school. Could you have done that work? Could you have learned whatever you learned if instead of spending three years on it, you spent a year and a half, half the time? If you marshaled every ounce of ability that have gave you. Could you have done the work of three years in a year and a half? And my friend admitted to me, yes, he could have done it. So I tell him, listen, half the time you wasted. It's extra. You could have done other things. You could have done double the output of what you actually did. All of us are capable of so much more than we actually do. But we have become conditioned to mediocrity by the people and the society that we are around. And then you have the shepherd. The shepherd, it's just you and God. There are no mediocre humans or any humans at all for miles and miles. The only beings that you're around are your flock. And that's it. You are removed from the regression to the mean of the masses. Under those conditions, when you are not judging yourself, measuring yourself by the pathetically low standards of every other person, pathetically low compared to what you can become, compared to the soul that you have within you, under that circumstances, under those conditions, you can truly soar. If you hold yourself up to the standard of just you and the Almighty, you're a shepherd. Under those conditions, you can unlock the incredible potential that you have. I remember the first day that I went to the Talmudic lecture of my teacher, Rabbi Usher Arieli. So this was the middle of a semester. It wasn't like the first day of the semester where I was really excited. It was the middle of the semester. And I went to the lecture and I was greeted By a fire hose. And the fire hose was shooting a barrage of Torah at me. And I could not believe how much Torah was conveyed in an hour. I was just not used to it. I couldn't believe how fast it was going. And I remember thinking, there's no way that me and anyone in this room We're not the same species. I cannot keep up. But what happened? A week later, became easier. A month later, was something I was used to. I had been conditioned to mediocrity to a much slower pace. You could listen with half an ear. You put in a little bit of effort. You don't have to think really hard because after all, it's really slow. It's mediocre. And now, you're finally forced to actually work. You're not used to it. But you know what? You've just upgraded your standards. And I was thinking, if it was twice as fast, it's possible that all of us would adjust. We all have incredible ability that we maybe not even aware of. We are just cruising. I remember hearing a great story about a young man who lived in Soviet Russia. Was very dedicated, a family it was really dedicated to Torah. And despite the state sanctioned atheism, they would study Torah on their own. And eventually they were refused next. They weren't allowed to go to Israel. Eventually in the 70s, they were allowed to go to Israel. And one of these young boys decided he wanted to join the Mir Yeshiva, the largest and most prestigious Talmudical Yeshiva in the world. And he went to the Rosh Yeshiva, head of Yeshiva. To have a test, to have an inspection, because when you want to join the yeshiva, you have to be inspected. Do you have the chops? Are you able to keep up with the pace? Do you have the ability to study at such an advanced institution? And he apologized profusely to the head of the yeshiva. He says, I'm so sorry, I only memorized three orders of Talmud with the commentaries. I'm so embarrassed about how little I know. And that's a real joke, because if you've ever studied Talmud, you know that there are only six orders of Talmud. And if you've memorized three of them, you've memorized half of Talmud, and you are in the top 1% of 1% of people who study Talmud. But he was in Russia. He was in Soviet Russia. He didn't know. He was never conditioned to mediocrity. He was a shepherd. It was just him and the Almighty. Had he been surrounded by mediocre people, then he would have said, okay, well, I know the page of Talmud better than anyone else. I'm good enough. I'm one of the bright ones. I'm one of the successful ones. I'm a success story. That's what would have happened. But he was alone. He didn't know about the accepted low expectations. He didn't know about that. So to him, it was just, I only know half a Talmud. I'm just embarrassed to show my face here. The shepherd is someone who has not been exposed to the toxic and destructive mediocrity and mediocre expectations and standards of the masses. And without this very low bar of expectation to work off, if that's not what you measure yourself against, that's how you become an all-time great. You realize that you have this soul, this nuclear bomb within you, a positive bomb for peaceful purposes. You have all this power within you You tap into it, and you develop it, and you push yourself really hard, and you become an Abraham, an Isaac, a Jacob, a Joseph, Moshe, Aaron, David. That's how you do it, by being a shepherd, just you and the Almighty living up to the expectations that the Almighty has for you, not the low, mediocre expectations of other people. I was thinking, there's another oddity about these seven people. All of them were removed from their siblings. Of course, Abraham had two brothers. He grew up in Ur, and God says to him, leave your family, leave your household, leave the place you grew up, and go and leave them. Isaac, of course, had a brother, Ishmael, who was banished. Jacob had a brother who wanted to kill him, and he had to flee and hightail out of there. Joseph, of course, the animus between him and his brothers is well-documented. Moshe and Aaron were brothers and were separated. And of course, David was the pariah of the family, rejected and cast away and ostracized. Maybe this is the same idea. To become one of these shepherds, you have to kind of be removed, so to speak, from the environment of everyone else and from the people that you grew up with and from the subpar and low and mediocre expectations of everyone else, become a shepherd and... Actualize and develop the tremendous gifts that I gave you. So shepherding is not incidental to the ascent of these titans. That precisely is the conditions by which great people become great. My favorite quote goes like this. The standard pace is for chumps. The standard pace of the whole world. That's for average people. That's for mediocre people. That's not for you. You want to become great. You can't follow the standard pace. You have to become a shepherd. And then there's one of them who actually was not a shepherd. That's Aaron. Aaron is called a shepherd despite not actually being one. It seems like Aaron was able to have the quality of a shepherd of not measuring himself by the pathetically low standards of the masses, despite not serving as a shepherd, not being isolated from the rest of society, despite being inside of society. Not only that, we know Aaron was a man of the people. He was always settling disputes and he was drawing people close to Torah. He was involved with society. Yet, he had an antidote to mediocrity. Yet, he was a shepherd. Here's the secret. The first thing we discover about Aaron is when Moshe, all the way back in the beginning of Exodus, is objecting to God sending him to save the Jewish people. And he has a whole series of objections and eventually tells God, send Aaron instead. And the commentators explain he was worried about Aaron's feelings. We've talked about this many times in the past. He was concerned that he would have all the glory and his older brother would be offended, he would be pained by it, send Aaron instead. And God responded to him, you word not Aaron. Aaron. Aaron, when he sees you, he will be delighted and glad in his heart. Aaron is someone who had no shred of envy. And therefore, he would be glad for Moshe, not just superficially, he would be glad for Moshe in his heart. Aaron had no envy, if you think about it. Envy is only when you measure yourself against other people with whom you live. Envy is not this absolute measure. It's a relative measure compared to other people. Because we measure ourselves against our neighbors, we have envy. All of us live more luxurious lives than kings had 500 years ago. So why are we envious? We are envious because we measure ourselves against the people we see, the people around us, the people in our contemporary society. And that is the same root of us adopting the mediocre standards of our neighbors. Aaron was a shepherd in the middle of society. He had no envy, but he also did not subsist with measuring himself by the standards of others he was able to shake off the conditioning to mediocrity despite not being an actual shepherd in the middle of the people he was still nevertheless a shepherd by refusing to capitulate to the standards of others by refusing to be envious of others he was a person who understood that they might expect a lot of him more of him than other people and not to say well i'm good enough for everyone else he was a shepherd in society. I think it's this is a very important point. It's critical for us to not be mediocre, to become shepherds. I've said the story in the past; it's an amazing story. The great head of the Vilagean Yeshiva, the Netziv, when he finished his monumental commentary, the Hamik Shaila. On the Sheiltos of Rabbi Choy Gon, he made the following announcement. He said that when he was young, he overheard his parents saying, Oh, this young boy of ours, he's just not cut out to become a great Torah scholar. He's not, he's not doesn't have the diligence, he doesn't have the ability to study for extended periods. He's just not the right guy for such a career. Let's get him an apprenticeship by the local shoemaker. And when he heard that, he overheard his parents talking about that. He says, you know what? Let me really apply myself and let's see what I could become. And eventually became a great titanic Torah scholar, the head of the yeshiva and and wrote many books, including the Hamachila, which is his magnum opus. And he said, what would have happened had I become a shoemaker? Would have been a righteous shoe you would imagine, I have a nice family, observe the Torah, study maybe on the side as well, have an honest living as a shoemaker, live a good life, live a righteous life. And then I would arrive to heaven and I'd have my audience with God and the Almighty will say, well, where are your books that you wrote or that you were supposed to write? Where is the Hamid Shila? Where's this book? And I would tell the Almighty, what is a Hamid Shaila? What is the Sheiltos of Rabbi Choy Gon? What are you talking about? I was a shoemaker. I wasn't a scholar. The Almighty judges us as if we were shepherds. He doesn't judge us by the standards of other people. He will ask us, why didn't you maximize the great gifts I gave you? I had such high expectations of you. Why didn't You deliver. And all of us will be shocked. Why is God God berating me? Why is he admonishing me? Why is he reprimanding me? I'm one of the good guys. I studied Torah. I gave charity. I did mitzvahs. I observed Shabbos. I was a good daughter. I was a good son. I treated my parents with honor and dignity. I was a good spouse. I was a good parent. I contributed to my community. The Almighty does not judge us Using that mediocre yardstick measuring us against other people. He judges us based upon what we were capable of. If we truly maximized the gifts that he gave us, he judges us like a shepherd. And he'll tell you, you could have studied all of Talmud. You could have studied all of Torah. You could have built and supported Torah organizations. You could have written Torah books. Dare I say, you could have spread Torah via podcasts, all other sorts of media. Where is it? I gave you superpowers, and you neglected to exploit them to their fullest. It's a terrifying thought. We all know that we are capable of a lot more than what we are doing. And that's the lesson of the shepherds. A shepherd is someone who says, I'm alone. You could be a literal shepherd, That's one way to stave off the mediocrity. You don't see other people. You don't know of any other people. You don't hold yourself to their standards. It's just you and the Almighty. What does the Almighty want of me? What did he give me? What are the tools that he gave me? What are the strengths he gave me? What are the opportunities that he gave me? And how do I make sure that I I do my mission? I fulfill my mandate. If you're a literal shepherd, this is easy. If you're not a literal shepherd, nevertheless... You have to adopt the other antidote to mediocrity, and that is the lesson of Aaron. I'm not envious of other people, because I don't judge myself as just another ordinary moist robot, another ordinary earthling. I'm an individual. And therefore, everything that I have is because God wants me to have that. It's not just... A uniform mission, everyone's got to do the same thing, and therefore everyone has to be jealous of each other? Oh no, I'm an individual. I can only judge myself against what the Almighty expects of me. With that attitude, when you see others flourish, you'll be happy in your heart. No envy. And you can become a shepherd, even amidst society. But that's the only way to become a true tzaddik, to actualize what the Almighty expects of you. I told this Dvar Torah to my Chavrusa, to my study partner, David, and he told me that his Chavrusa said to him that this really fits into the festival of Sukkot. Of course, on Sukkot, we shake the four species, the Esrod, the Lulav, and the Esrod, of course, represents the tzaddik, And the other three, they represent everyone else, the average, the okay, and even the wicked. And of course, when you, when you, when you hold them, the esrogue is held alone in your left hand and the bundle of the other three are in the right hand. The esrogue is the tzaddik, is the shepherd of the four species. It's the one that's alone. How do you become a tzaddik? How do you become an esrogue? When you are alone to a certain extent, you judge yourself as if you were a shepherd. It's just you and the Almighty. I think, in general, this is one of the lessons, the meta-lessons of the festival of Sukkot. On Rosh Hashanah, we coronated God. On Yom Kippur, please God, hopefully, we earned expiation, cleansing of all our misdeeds. Now, we have the Almighty, so to speak, as our Master. We've been purified and cleansed from every malady, from every blemish, from every flaw. Now it's time for us to unleash our potential. And we sit in the sukkah, it's just us and the Almighty. And we sit with the seven shepherds. And as the liturgy tells us, they talk to us. And this is also the time that we finish the Torah. And we dwell on how Moshe became the person he became. And again, the Midrash tells us he was a shepherd. That was his preparation for greatness. And you know what? We finish the Torah. And we go back to square one. We go back to a clean, blank slate of humanity. Adam. That's it. Maybe the lesson is like this. At this time of year, in this juncture in the calendar, learning all that we know, we have been shown what we need to do. You've seen Moshe. You've seen his transformation. You've spent a week with these shepherds talking to you. Now it's your turn. You have seen how great a man can become, a person can become. Okay, now it's your turn. Go make something out of yourself. The shepherd doesn't subsist with the standards or even with the mission type of others. He recognizes that he's an individual, a one-of-one. Doesn't use the mediocre standards of other people. And that is how you end up. As a giant, and that is what the mighty expects of you. Okay, let's get to these sweets A&Q. This is the final A&Q of the Fifth cycle of the Parsha Podcast. Should we do the ANQ next year? What do you think? Should we do it? Let me know. Send me an email, Rabboji.com. So this week the NQ comes courtesy of the death and burial and mourning period over Moshe. The verse says that the sons of Israel mourned Moshe. So Rashi tells us what does it mean the sons of Israel? Hazicharim, the males. Aval, but by Aaron, because Aaron was someone who always pursued peace and would always instill peace between man and wife. It doesn't say that the sons of Israel cried over Aaron. It says the house of Israel, the men and the women. So this is a description of the mourning period of Moshe. And the entire section is talking about the greatness of Moshe. It's lauding Moshe. It's praising Moshe. It's eulogizing Moshe. And here it seems like it's throwing a little barb at Moshe. The Torah is coming to compliment Moshe. Yet Rashi seems to say, well, they mourned him, but it wasn't really everyone because his impact wasn't quite as great as Aaron. It seems inappropriate. If we are praising Moshe, if Moshe has been given, so to speak, his eulogy, Why is the Torah, so to speak, or apparently, criticizing him, saying, yeah, he's great, but you know what? The eulogy wasn't really as great as Aaron's because Aaron, was his impact was even greater. So that's the question. The final A&Q of this cycle is what do we make of the Torah seemingly indicating that Moshe, his impact, and the legacy that he left, and the void that he left behind him, wasn't quite as comprehensive as that of Aaron. If you have an answer, send me an email, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Now last week we asked a question, interesting question, I thought. If Moshe lives vicariously via Joshua, why does he still covet to enter the land himself? Here's my take on this very interesting and intricate question. Moshe is telling the nation that after I die, you're going to sin. And Rashi tells us, well, it was really after Joshua died that they started sinning. But no, Moshe, because he loved Joshua so much, he felt that he was alive so long as Joshua was alive. There's a deeper message here. The reason why the nation didn't sin is because Moshe felt alive so long as Joshua was alive. Joshua knew that he had the full confidence and support of Moshe. Moshe knew that Joshua would be an able successor, and that's why they didn't sin. The context of this verse and Rashi's comment are not mutually exclusive. It is because Moshe was, so to speak, alive. Joshua was acting in a mosaic fashion. That's why they didn't sin. So maybe we can answer the question as follows. And I would pose a question, a separate question, and we'll answer both questions, the Talmud actually asks this question. Talmud says, why was Moshe so obsessed with entering the land? And Talmud answers that he wanted to do the mitzvot. And he wanted to do the agricultural mitzvot in the land. He could only do that in the land. And that's why he was so desperate to enter the land. This is a very perplexing Talmud. Why does Moshe want to go into the land? Moshe is the leader of the people. A righteous leader does not abandon his flock. Of course, he wants to cross over the Jordan. What is the Talmud's question? Here's the answer. Moshe knew that the nation would fare well under Joshua. So the normal reason why you would expect Moshe to want to enter the land is so he could lead the nation. He's, of course, so selfless he... Worries so much about the nation, he wants to lead them. He wants to oversee them. He wants to be able to make sure that they are in good hands. But that was not a concern. Because Joshua was an embodiment of Moshe. Joshua the Talmud tells us his face was like the moon reflecting the light of Moshe, who was like the sun. Joshua mirrored Moshe. And that's why Moshe felt alive via Joshua. So why did Moshe want to enter the land? The only reason why is because he wanted to do the mitzvahs. Leadership-wise, the nation was in good hands, but Moshe himself, he knew that you cannot do a mitzvah vicariously via someone else. It's not possible. The only way to fulfill the agricultural mitzvahs of the land is if you yourself entered. And that is why, and that's the only reason why, like the Talmud says, Moshe is so deeply coveted to enter the land. I thank you for listening. I thank you for your incredible support and listenership throughout this cycle. I really genuinely believe that the only reason why we succeeded in doing this together is because of my righteous antecedents, of course, but because there's an audience that's interested, that takes it seriously, that listens intently, that grows from it. And therefore, despite all the challenges, it was a pretty topsy-turvy year for everyone, but also for me. Nevertheless, it worked out every single week. And I cannot be more proud of you that uh, you've been here throughout the whole run. And that's it. Hopefully later on this week, we'll have another episode beginning the SID cycle. Could you believe it? The SID cycle, partial podcast. With the help of the Almighty, I wish you to have an an amazing rest of your festival of Sukkot, and then Sheminat Atzeris, and then Simchas Torah. And please, God, we will yet talk again this week for Parshas Barashas. My email address is RabbiWolby at gmail.com.